This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Narain Goyal, CFO of FSR. You are listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode number 399. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we explore how influential CFOs are when it comes to culture building. Together, we narrow the lens on two finance leaders that have distinguished themselves as unflinching culture builders. How they mentor, how they instruct, policies they enforce, the processes they put in place are all part of culture building. Joining us on this journey will be finance thought leader, Brett Knowles. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, A majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Linked data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that I invited Brett Knowles to join us today. Now, for those who might not know Brett, he is a longtime thought leader in the performance management space, and over the last 20 years, he has worked with doctors Kaplan and Norton. For those of you familiar with the Balance Scorecard Collaborative, I'm sure many of you are. Uh, and his clients have been referenced in each of their books. Our topic, The Culture Building CFO. It was one I knew Brett would love to sink his teeth into for us. And we begin rather informally, but I think you'll agree uh, the episode quickly gains momentum. I was really pleased with how it turns out. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, Jack, it's Brett. Hey, Brett. Sounded kind of screechy there for a second. Uh, well, it was only because I was uh, getting my microphone back in position. Okay, well... Please take a minute, uh, and uh, thank you again for letting us circle back with you. I know you expressed interest when I first mentioned the idea that we were going to produce an episode that looked at culture-building CFOs. I feel that over time, our CFO interviews have contributed heavily to the evidence that needs to be used to expel once and for all Uh, the myth that CFOs have little influence 
over a company culture or participate in building that culture and then explore with you some of their ideas and the approach uh, they've taken. Do you think that approach will uh, suit our purpose? First, Jack, I think we have to think about what is culture. Uh, for many years in, in my career, uh, I used to just avoid the topic. It was just this soft, fuzzy thing that had nothing to do with numbers and, and how we ran the organization. Uh, but recently, we've been uh, having to, to confront culture and deal with it in a more proactive way, and it's forced us to think about it. Uh, and the conclusion I've come to is that that culture is how an organization lives its values. So you could have a value like uh, integrity or um, honor, something like that. And uh, that value is interesting, but other than being a poster on the wall, it's, it doesn't help us get traction. But if we think about how we live that uh, integrity or that moral value and how it manifests ourselves in our decisions, that becomes a culture. So an example is if we say that we want to operate with integrity, you know, we tell people what we're going to do and we go and do it. Then I can begin taking a look at the at what we do. You know, we tell someone we're going to deliver our product at this date, do we actually do it? And if we are unable to deliver it, are we clear with them early that we can't do it and set the correct expectation. So I can actually begin to measure how we are exhibiting that value in, in what we call culture. And so now it becomes more substantial. It's not just a nebulous concept. I can actually measure it. And then if you begin thinking about the things that influence that, uh, sure, it's what the CFO does and how they perform and, and, and the other executives. But it also has to do with things like customers. If, if we deal with a customer that doesn't exhibit, for example, integrity, so they ask for something on a particular date and then they change the requested date four times or uh, they change the specs at the last minute, however that might be, all of a sudden we're dealing with customers that don't exhibit our value. They don't perform with integrity. And it almost becomes a cancer that spreads into our organization. Likewise, if I have a supplier, the supplier tells me they're going to deliver on time and they end up being late, but they don't tell us about it and it's a surprise and we disappoint our customers and so on, that's like this cascading effect uh, that uh, even our network outside of the organization influences our culture. And if we see that leadership continues having us deal with those customers or deal with those suppliers, it indicates to us that they're not really intent on that particular cultural attribute. Okay. Well, you've already given us quite a bit to think about. I'm going to tee up our first finance leader. Now, something these two finance leaders share in common is that they are CFOs for mid-size organizations today and believe they can have a greater impact on culture inside a mid-sized company than perhaps in a larger enterprise. What might be your thoughts on that? I think it's uh, it open to debate uh, about the influence of uh, an individual based on the size of the organization that they're in. Uh, some organization, some individuals' personality and brand 
um, are omnipresent. If you think of the obvious people like you know Steve Jobs or you know Bill Gates, their uh, their behaviors are watched closely by everyone and informs everyone's behavior and it informs who's interested in joining that organization and so on. My response to uh, the size of company being an influencer, um, I don't believe that's the case. My example is people like Steve Jobs. But if I move beyond that, the bigger example is how fast you can see the impact you have had on the culture. And in a smaller company, you can see the impact much faster than in a larger company. Um, so that is a, a sort of a key aspect of what individuals are looking for. If you want to make faster change or more identifiable change, then by all means, choose a small or mid-sized organization. I think the history of the people that we are going to be listening to, Jack, also plays a role because how we choose to behave ourselves is based on our ancestry. And so as we hear how an executive has uh, grown up through the ranks, you can learn uh, about why they choose to behave in a certain way. Okay. Well, our first CFO to be featured is Gene Prather of eBuilder of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Now, eBuilder is a developer of software for the construction industry. And uh, thinking back now, as our interview with Jean progressed, it became very clear to me that she viewed culture building as a central part of her role as a CFO. And, you know, very clear that she'd make an excellent candidate uh, to feature in this episode. So, again, this is, again, this is Jean Prather, CFO of eBuilder. Um, I graduated from a business school in Boston, outside of Boston, Bentley University, and that's where I got my accounting degree from and went to um, KPMG in Boston for eight years. And then they um, transferred me to the Miami office where um, I was in their technology group. And that basically, in total, I was there for 12 years at KPMG, and it gave me the background that I needed to, you know, move on. And it, it was a pivotal point in my career where it, do I decide to stay in public accounting or do I go down the private route? Well, back then, clients could hire you. And one of my clients hired me as their VP of finance. And so from there, um, I, I took that company public and then I moved on to, you know, I was there five years and then moved on to other technology companies. So I've been in the technology sector ever since. It's probably my biggest strength is people. Um, they trust me, and I think trust is the biggest thing, trust and respect. And if people trust you, they're going to work hard for you. They're going to deliver for you. They want to make you proud. And the big thing in all my companies, the first thing I do is establish trust. And I think along the way in my whole career, um, people follow me. 
people want to work for me. People want to, you know, I'm hard on them. I have very high expectations of people. There are some people out there that can't work for me because they don't like to work hard. But the people who want to work hard and do a great job know that I'm going to reward them and know that I'm going to be, I'm going to have their back. And trust is the biggest thing throughout. And I learned that in public accounting. And what you, what my base of public accounting was, I had worked for 10 partners maybe, and you have 10 different personalities. You learn how to work with different people. You have, you know, if you're a senior manager, you might have six jobs going on at the same time. And those six jobs have five different groups involved. So you have to learn to manage people a different way and what makes them tick. Everyone gets, you know, managed differently based on what, how they are. So I learned that base in public accounting. And then when I got to Deline, which was the company that hired me, um, they basically, you know, I had 20 people staring at me when I walked in and they just wanted a leader. They wanted, they were hungry. And you have all these people that just want to do a good job and they want someone that cares about them. And, and so what my approach to any time I go to a new company, my approach is the first two weeks. I have one-on-one -on -one lunches with everyone that's in my department. I have group meetings. And I just start establishing that trust, and it's worked very well. What all the companies that I've ever worked for have, the one thing they have in common is they needed help building processes, and they needed help going to the next level. So like something like Mastec, who is a billion-dollar company, they didn't have the infrastructure and the process, and I had to implement Sarbanes-Oxley there. So I learned a lot at Mastec about Sarbanes-Oxley and the whole process and internal controls. So I had that base at KPMG, but I just built upon it at Mastec. And then, you know, you go to someone like Prolexit, never had a CFO, much smaller company, but you're able to accomplish, you know, you, in a smaller company, you touch everything. And, um, you know, they, so they needed process. They had never had a CFO. They, they needed someone to build them to the next level. And same with eBuilder. eBuilder found what I did at Prolexic. They needed to mirror that. And basically, I came in and I've been, you know, trying to look at internally all the processes. And I'm much more operational CFO focused than, you know, just a behind the scenes spreadsheet financial person. So all of the companies that I've worked for in my career are all related to just process improvement, getting the company to the next level. And with Mastech, even though they were a billion dollar company, they needed a lot of change because of all the issues they had with the SEC. First thing I do is I, I establish trust, and it's not just with the people that report to me, it's with everyone. So like, um, for example, at eBuilder, when I came on, the CEO was signing all the contracts and sales and doing all the sales stuff, and that got shifted to me, and so I had to establish trust with salespeople. I had to develop a relationship with them, and so it's not an automatic thing. You just don't walk into a building and just think, okay, this is just going to happen. You have to establish the respect and the trust. And then so with sales, like we 
sales and accounting, we click, we get along, they understand what I need, I understand what they need, and same with professional services, you know, we have a whole implementation team that performs services, and I establish relationships with all the implementation people so they can trust me if they have a question on revenue, or if I have a question, there's an easy communication. So, and the executive team, you know, just not assuming that, you know, we all should just get along. It's work. It's, you know, you have to establish relationships with everyone and make sure that, you know, the respect's there and they understand your motivation versus what they need to get done. And so we all click on all cylinders. And it's very important that the executive team is on the same page because that does, you know, affect culture. If all of us are feeling differently and not on the same page, then, you know, it, it goes down to the organization. So I feel like I'm an integral part of the culture. People look up to me. They look to me to see how I am, what's happening. And, you know, it, that's what people look for. They look at the executive. It, I touch everything. With with bigger companies, you tend to be put into a you know a box, and I can't I can't touch. Like I talk to every employee at this company. I feel like it's a family. The culture is so is so good, and it was like that at all the small companies I worked. So I, I like the small company mentality. You're able to touch more. You're able to make more of a difference. And I feel I have a lot of value and satisfaction every day. And one of my biggest strengths is my is managing people. And I feel like on the bigger companies, it's all like so metric driven and, you know, the organizational chart. I wouldn't have a lot of people under me directly. And with smaller companies, you tend to have a, you know, a lot of people reporting to you and you can make a difference in their lives and in their careers. And people look up to me and they trust me and they reach out to me and I get a lot of um, satisfaction with that that I don't think I would get at a bigger company. hits a certain size, when they go from small to mid-size, 
how they stop and try to figure out what is their value set. And when they figure out what their value set is, it's not like what value sets do you want. It's taking a survey of the current employees and what values they exhibit and respect. And we change to repair their values. And that makes sense because the companies achieve that success level on the back of whatever the values are that have to exist. So a great way to set your values is just assess what values exist when you hit that threshold point. And then once you've assessed them, decide which of those I want to maintain and sustain, and which ones I need to now begin to move to the background as we move up to the next level of our growth. So, the view that we can proactively create it, I don't think you can create it from dirt, but you have a starting point and I can massage it and move it forward from that point. And so I like the idea that she says culture is not an accident, but you specifically build it. Now, for her, she's described two key, I'm not sure what you call them, values or cultural attributes. One is about trust. And so she's huge about building trust in people. And part of her equation is trust is a two way street. Trust is I trust in you and you work hard and that builds each other. So you could think of it as two values trust and second, work hard. The third is a better line and, and she just brushes on it, but it's crucial to her argument that we begin to get aligned in our thinking and the decisions that we make. And so she's got this subset of things. Trust being the biggest one, that's her key value. And she very specifically does activities to build trust. She sets situations up the one on one meetings and the small team meetings uh, to build trust. And then she manages that through her day to day activities and notes that people look to us closely to see how we behave and from that interpret which of those values. Uh, and culture attributes are back in play. Now, what's interesting is she also makes clear uh, her role as a process builder or someone who's helping the company adopt new processes. And it, you know, occurs to me that how culture and process really have to uh, achieve an alignment. Uh, so it's so important that the uh, person who's charged with uh, setting up processes or making sure they're being adopted uh, is a way of culture and how to align it with the culture. Uh, because if, it, if there isn't such an alignment, you could really, uh, you could corrupt the culture or the process to function correctly. Absolutely. And that occurs each and every day in each and every organization. So, to, to restate, uh, the, the, the current uh, academic framework is this. We're moving towards an idea that goes beyond culture that talks about the employee experience. The employee experience is driven by three core things. Uh, the technology, the processes in which we are forced to operate, uh, employee engagement, and facilities. Now, facilities are an interesting point. We don't have to talk about it today, but you know, if you're working on some radical DG organization, it does have an impact. Employee engagement, which is uh, includes culture, uh, is important. But that third driver, the, the technology and process, is an is incredibly important driver of culture. So let's say we want a culture of servitude. We want to help our customers. But 
you know, I'm working on a call center and I don't have the right information. So someone calls in and I should, if the technology, the process should filter that, that number that's calling in and identify what products of ours you have and write you to an operator that is deeply knowledgeable for that product or service. Now, if that doesn't happen, if I end up getting a call from someone about a product that I know nothing about, then all of a sudden I'm getting bad service. And I feel bad as an employee because I know I can't answer the questions. And of course, the customer feels bad because they're not getting their needs met. So, you know, bad, you know, automation makes bad processes worse faster. And if we don't have you know, the right tools and processes in place, we can't deliver on that culture of the value. Thought Leader listeners, we're about to feature our next culture-building CFO. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after these messages. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, for our next culture building CFO, we will be featuring finance leader Robert Bandetti of Life Cycle Engineering of Charleston, South Carolina, which uh, provides engineering solutions to uh, commercial companies and government organizations. In our earlier discussion with Robert, uh, the subject of culture was inescapable, and it seemed to uh, be a touch point for so much of his thinking uh, on building a company. So we're pleased to, once again, share some of his thinking with you. This is Robert Bendel. and the opportunity arises, it's possible that you could accept a senior position working uh, under and sort of under the tutelage of the CFO, and because of the timing, he or she might retire and be exiting just as you're becoming uh, mature enough and have enough experience to accept the position. It's just really rare, and that was certainly never my experience. I never had that opportunity. And so I thought that I could make my own opportunity. I could create my own opportunity by being willing to accept a position at a much smaller firm, no name cachet, but uh, that it, this would be an exciting adventure. It might, the, the stresses that a small business that's fast growing can also be a quickly, uh, can quickly go out of business. But it would be the opportunity to learn not only the financial roles of an organization, but to support and help marketing and IT and purchasing and human resources, something that I wouldn't have had, didn't have at a firm the size of Hormel or Lockheed Martin. I found that very appealing, and so when the opportunity arose, I 
talked it over with my wife, who I really consider my life partner, and we both thought it would be an exciting opportunity, and so I jumped in.
Getty uh, joins Gene Prather in our culture building episode. Uh, differences, commonalities. Let's let's begin there. What did you hear that these finance leaders share? Well, they're they're both people oriented, but both of them have uh, systems thinking applied to their jobs. So Jean's perspective, you know, her system is trust, work hard, alignment. In Robert's case, his system is eliminate distractions. Um, and the subtitle has helped people succeed, but he's helping people succeed not by bolstering what they're great at. He, he helps what they're great at by getting out of the way. He thinks his primary job, his systems thinking is eliminate distractions. What he said as a, as a sidebar to one of his comments I thought was awesome. He said, one, you've got to take feedback, and two, act slowly. I, I think of all the comments we've heard, that is the most brilliant one because, you know, here in North America with this propensity of being type A, senior people, act, you know, shoot first, ask questions second, you know, that kind of mentality – and he says, act slowly. And not only act slowly, but one of the stories he emphasizes is how you even have to repeat the same thing ten times. And to repeat it ten times or twenty times, I can't change my story. I can't every quarter have a new target to chase after. Be very pragmatic. Be very specific. Pace yourself and stay the course. And so he doesn't call it culture, but uh, it's a... a a system thinking applied to how I behave and therefore becomes a culture. Is this a, is this a set of rules? Is this, would you call it a framework? You know, they've, they've got a framework, a system way of applying it that they then apply to people. And, and I say that because controllers tend to be you know, left brain endowed. We tend to think of them as being systems thinkers or, or technical people, not social people. And these are examples of using a technical skill and applying it in a social architecture. They're not mutually exclusive. And even people who are strongly systems thinkers can train their brains to better interface with people if they have these sorts of means or frameworks in which they structure their response. So when you come up to Robert with a question, his brain's first going to say, what are the distractions that are getting in this person's way? And step one is to get rid of those distractions. Then he's going to say, okay, so what is the message here that I'm going to be repeating 10 or 20 times? And then how do I do that at a reasonable pace? I can't say it 20 times in a row. How do I spread that over the next six months? And so it's a systemized approach to enabling that cultural attribute. Can we zero in a little sharper on the CFO versus other members? It seems to me a CEO who is looking to fortify uh, the culture of their organization would be wise to choose a CFO like Gene or Bob who can complement their expressive leadership uh, by their ability to 
instill trust in others and sort of secure the trust of the organization uh, at large? Well, the, I think the burden of your uh, question, Jack, is around what is the CFO's role uh, in forming culture? And it's an interesting question because, as Gene says, all executives, all C-level people have a role in forming that culture. And so the question is, is the role of the CFO any different than the CEO or the chief marketing officer or anyone else? And I believe it is. And here's my thinking, that uh, first off, there are only some of the executives that truly operate cross-functionally. So, uh, you know, uh, chief sales officer deals only with the salespeople, chief marketing only with marketing and so forth. But there are three executives that, that both, job predominantly is cross-functional, and that's the CFO, the HR, and the IT individuals. They all work cross-functionally, and to some extent in a servitude role. So of all the people that influence culture, they have a higher influence because they touch everyone. So if you have a bad CFO that is exhibiting bad cultural attributes, it affects everyone. Or in these two examples, if you have great CFOs, they also affect everyone. But if I take a look at those three functions, finance, HR, and IT, of all of those, IT is the only true overseer. Uh, IT is an enabler. HR doesn't really own things like culture, although many people mistakenly think they do. If you think of the HR function, it's actually the worst of all because they don't do anything. They build methodologies and tools that other people use. So they develop what does that you know, quarter-end or year-end performance review process look like, but they don't actually go and deliver it to anyone other than just their HR colleagues. Everyone else in the organization uses that methodology and delivers it. So although they have the tools that touch all human capital, they themselves don't execute those tools. And it's a bit like you know, me in the workshop that – uh, the, the, or on the golf course, the same get, set of golf clubs that won't work for me work magic for someone else. The same HR tools delivered by a bad executive are not going to get the results that HR dreamt of. So if we go back to their roles, IT, cross-functional, but isn't an influencer, they're an enabler. HR, cross-functional, but they're also not an influencer, they just provide the methodology and tools. Whereas finance tends to be on the top down, looking down from an audit perspective or an overseer perspective, and therefore they're a more dominant force and looked at closer in terms of their behaviors and how they influence culture. So my argument would be, of all the executives, it's the CEO and CFO that have the highest controlling and managing impact on establishing culture. All right. Well, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but we're we're almost at the very end of our uh, episode. But what what did we overlook, maybe, or, or what uh, what's missing uh, to this conversation? I'm sure we could do another three episodes on this. No, no problem. But what what else would you like to add? So the the interesting thing that I didn't hear from Gene and Robert is. Anything about how they actually measure 
and manage, uh, and therefore manage the cultures that they're building. And measurement's an important thing. As CFOs, gosh, that's what we do for a living. Why is it they're not specifically measuring the culture that they're creating? And and I believe it's uh, the answer is obvious, and that is, you know, as we go through CPA training and so on, there is no generally accepted culture measurement uh, techniques, and and I can't easily attribute it back to dollars, and it doesn't live within GAAP and so forth. And so we know that we need to do it, but we don't specifically measure it. And we all know what gets measured gets done. So if we don't put in a specific measurement process around culture, yes, people will exhibit it and will try to manifest it as these two great CFOs have shown us, but it's not scalable, it's not repeatable, it's not reliable. And so we need to think about as CFOs, how do we measure? And it's easily done. If I go back to my integrity example from earlier on, I can measure. Did I meet those delivery dates? Did I tell someone I was going to do and actually go and do it? If I had to do something different, did I tell them early in the game that it was going to end up being something different? So for each of those cultural attributes or those values, once we've determined what they are, it's relatively easy to figure out how to measure it. But it's not something that we do as CFOs, and I think that's the guilt card I would play. Yes, we need to form it, and we have different strengths and capabilities of doing it, but all of us should be measuring it. All of us can put that structure in place, and that may be the strongest influence we can have as controllers and CFOs on forming the right culture. Red, you hear that music? That means uh, I've got 30 seconds to wrap things up. So, for uh, CFO Thought Leader, thank you for joining us. Many thanks to you, Red Knowles, for joining us, of course, and our two finance leaders, CFOs Gene Crater and Robert Vendetti. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.